Well, this morning, our scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. The uh, text is printed for you just below the song we sang together. Um, If you have your Bibles, I also invite you to, uh, to turn and look at that passage with me. This is the word of the Lord. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Man, this is a crazy day. It blows my mind that this is the first Easter Sunday worship service that we've had inside in two years. Crazy. Two years ago. Oh, it was nice enough last year. It's a beautiful day. A couple years ago, I preached to a camera lens. That was the worst. Uh, that, was, that was the worst, right? And then, uh, and then last year, we're, out, we're outside, and uh, you know, thankfully, we live in a, in a lovely climate, But this year, we're approaching something that feels normal-ish. But normal-ish this year really doesn't feel that great. Uh, I I know know that a lot of you agree that normal-ish, what what we're in right now, it feels feels pretty heavy. We're, We're surrounded by bad news. Everywhere we look, we're surrounded by bad news. I mean, two years of, of, of a pandemic, there's always threats of new variants just on the horizon. There's a war in Ukraine that's felt very heavy. And I don't know if you felt this dynamic, but like a month ago, it felt really heavy. How many of you today, does it, does it just feel a little bit lighter? And then you start to struggle with how much of your energy and concern should you give to a far-off war? Um, I was struck with, with the power of, of, a, of the words I read from a, a political exile from Myanmar who addressed the United Nations last month with this plea where he said, you know, we stand with Ukraine too, but don't forget about us. Don't forget about our human rights atrocities that have been happening for two years in the civil war in Myanmar. We have this general fear of the future right now. I think like for the most part, in this country, in the post-war years, from the last century kind of into this one, we've had this narrative of progress. It's not something we talk about explicitly, but it's the, it's the idea that we've had tremendous prosperity 
in this country in the post-war years. And right now, the future just doesn't seem that stable. Rates of depression and anxiety just increase year after year in devastating numbers. Drug overdose has recently become the leading cause of, of, of uh, U.S. In, uh, injury death. It surpassed car accidents. And so the last thing that we need to do is gather together in church and slap a coat of paint on the brokenness of the world we live in. And Easter can kind of feel like that sometimes, right? Easter can kind of feel like we just slap a coat of paint on the real world. And what doesn't help anything is like the commercial holiday colors of Easter are pastel. So we're slapping a pastel uh, can of paint on top of the real world. But you see, we're gathered here this morning to remember and to celebrate that Easter is the opposite of a pastel coat of paint to cover up the world as it is. I'm insisting this morning that Easter is a protest. Easter is a protest against the way things are with the insistence that there is a truer, more enduring reality because something happened in history. Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. Easter is a celebration of a glorious event that really took place in our world, in the history that we inhabit, and it defies any and all present-day circumstances. And so Easter is a protest against life as we know it, right? Turn off your computers, turn off your TVs, and, and what makes up so much of our lives, right? Before we even introduce that stuff into our lives, we still have hopes crushed, dreams unrealized. So many of us know loneliness, broken hearts, sadness, disappointment, regrets, anxiety, depression, abuse, shame, and guilt. And every single one of us, if it hasn't happened yet, all of us will be touched by death. And yet Easter is this reminder that there really is something more enduring and more powerful than what this world holds out for us. Do you believe this? Can you believe this? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I can look at all of this bad news around us and we can acknowledge it for what it is and insist that unshakable joy is not only possible, but it will have the last word. And so my plea to you as we get going here is, is that this is not a day of sentimentalism. This is not a day of wishful thinking. It's instead about looking at the world with eyes wide open and in protest, heeding the invitation that we see in our passage today. This invitation to hope and joy that is grounded in this flesh and blood bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same invitation experienced by these disciples who, who we're going to slide into their shoes this morning because I think they give, us, they give us a mirror of exactly what it looks like to be confronted with the risen Lord we're going to look at their experience. And so two points that we'll take as, as we'll just work through the passage we read is, first of all, the protest of Easter. We'll keep exploring that idea of what we're protesting. And then also this promise of, of enduring joy. So we've got a protest and a promise. So first of all, what's, what's the protest of Easter? Let's keep exploring that. We've got to set the stage for where we pick up here in Luke 24. We jump right into the end of the story. Jesus has been crucified and buried. 
it's hard to grasp. I mean, we can only use our imaginations and grasp what the disciples, those closest to Jesus, felt during this time. It's not just that their leader, that, that the one they love, that the one they've given their lives to, it's not just that he has been killed. We have to grasp this. It's not just that, that Jesus has passed away. Jesus has been executed in a way that was designed to be the most humiliating and shameful way that humanity has ever devised to kill someone. If you read ancient literature, crucifixion is only ever alluded to until you come to the four Gospels, and there it's front and center. Jesus has been executed in this way where he is exposed as this public spectacle of shame. And so what, do you, what are the disciples going through at this point? I mean, they feel defeated. They feel deflated. They're embarrassed, I imagine. Do they feel betrayed and a little angry? Because they bought into this message. They bought in to who Jesus said he was. And so they must have felt crushed. And then rumors start to circulate. Rumors start to gather speed. Some are claiming they've encountered Jesus risen from the dead. And these, rep these reports are coming to the disciples. And you can imagine that some of them probably don't really want to believe it. Others of them really want to believe it. But they can't let themselves believe it. It's not easy to do. There's just no way. His claims are unlikely. It's not as if 2,000 years ago people expected resurrections. No, these aren't Neanderthals, right? These are, these are human beings who understand how life works, which means they understand the dead stay dead. That was true 2,000 years ago. It's true today. And so these rumors are stupid. These rumors don't make sense. We're not going to believe it. We're not going to get our hopes up only to be crushed again. And this is where our passage picks up. The disciples are gathered in a room trying to figure out what to do because the rumors are gaining steam. And then we come to verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. At this point, they can see Jesus. They can hear Jesus, but they still can't believe that the man who is in the room with them, the man they had spent countless days with in the past few years, they can't believe that this man was Jesus. Then look at verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet. Oh, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So now they've seen him. Now they've heard him. Jesus invites them, come on, touch me. Uh, they can even feel with their hands the unlikeliest body that is standing before them. And then notice the wording of verse 41. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That's a remarkable verse. It's strange wording. It's something that I think you could read this passage a hundred times and miss. They disbelieved for joy. They disbelieved for joy. In other words, Jesus is standing right in front of them, and because they are trying to cling to any joy they have, they refuse to believe it. They can see him, they can hear him, they can touch him. They have all of the evidence that you and I could possibly want, but there is one last obstacle that they can't get over. 
And that's the fear of this isn't how the world works. Not that just the dead stay dead. That's true. That's how our world works. No, it's, if it's too good to be true, then what? It is. It is too good to be true. And so the disciples disbelieve in order to protect their hearts. They, they disbelieve that Jesus is in front of them to protect their joy. And I think we can relate to this. This, this rings true. By and large, most of us in this room are cynics. Part of growing older is having a, a deep and hardened pessimism. And the way that we adjust to living in this world as it is, with all of the experiences that we go through, is we start to lower our expectations. Uh, we just try to get by. We, we try to make the best of this situation. Even when things are going well, and we have to admit, often things go really well, what do we do? We just wait for the other shoe to drop. And I think the skepticism is justified. I think the cynicism is justified. I don't think the Bible disagrees with this assessment of things. The Bible doesn't whisper sweet nothings into our ear as we deal with the harsh realities of life. No, the Bible is brutally honest about our grief, about the way of our existence. And the Bible also tells us, you know, it wasn't always this way. When God designed life, life was perfect. This world was perfect. Originally, there was no such thing as too good to be true. Goodness was the only thing that was true. There was no such thing as getting your hopes up. Your hopes were perfectly up, and they stayed there. They never came crashing down. And then our first parents fell. They sought goodness and joy apart from God. Sin was introduced into this perfect, good world. And so when we hear the word sin, what do we think of most of all? We think of, of, of morality, which is, which is good. Sin means doing bad things. It means violating God's law, and that's, that's absolutely true. But sin is more. Sin is vandalism to God's design. It brought ruin to God's creation. It's a fatal flaw in, in the system. Nothing works as it's intended to work. Sin and death is more like a lens with which the world is now viewed and experienced. I've given this illustration be before, and, and I think it's, it's pretty effective, where you know, life in a fallen world, life under the sun, is, is like a, a photograph from a photo album from the 1970s, that because of the acid in the page, it's turned all of those beautiful memories orange and yellow. The memories are good, we still love the people in the pictures, but, the, but, the, but there's something off, there's something defiled, there's something tainted, and, and that's the experience that we have in, in life in this world. And so do we experience the goodness of love? Yes, but it's defiled with selfishness. Do we experience the goodness of friendship? Yes, but it's defiled by betrayal. Uh, it, it's defiled by attachment issues. It's defiled by jealousy. Laughter is defiled by pain. Romance, even the most incredible romance you can imagine, is defiled by heartache. Health is defiled by disease, and every single life is defiled by death. This is where Easter enters the picture. Because it's a protest to this defilement. And so what is the human condition apart from this protest? We just try to cope. In whatever way we can, we just try to hang in there. And that's exactly what the disciples are doing in verse 41. They're trying to hang in there. They're disbelieving for joy. 
they protect what little joy they have left by, by not exposing that joy to this plausibility of good news. And so Easter stands in protest to the very normal need to even disbelieve for joy. Okay, so what will Jesus do in the face of their disbelief? What does Jesus do with our low expectations, right? Well, he shatters them with the resurrection and resurrection joy. He restores the film. He introduces the possibility of actual meaningful hope and joy. And that's where we turn now. Second final point is the promise of Easter. So go back to verse 41. While they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate, from the, and ate before them. How good is this? How unexpected is this? How does Jesus address their disbelief and their doubts, their skepticism? Hey, you guys got any food? Now there's a double meaning there, right? Uh, he demonstrates the physical reality of the resurrection. So the first question is, can a spirit, can a ghost actually eat and digest a piece of fish? And, and, and of course the answer is no. But there are many ways that he could demonstrate that he was tangibly, actually a human being raised from the dead. And so instead, this, this mundane, very human activity is doing something different. It's making an impression and it's standing out. Because there's more here with this request for food. He's trying to prove a point. He's choosing the most hospitable way to prove himself. You know, he does the exact same thing with Peter when he, when he, when he approaches Peter after the resurrection. First thing with Peter, his denier, is to reconcile Peter to himself over breakfast. I think this is remarkable. Why do the Gospels record Jesus doing this time and time again after the resurrection? Why this eating? It's because a meal is universally understood as the most welcoming and joyful thing that we do as human beings. When we celebrate, what do we always have? Food. Can you think of a celebration in your life where there was no food? Try to think of something that's meaningful in your life that does not involve a table and food and sharing it with people. If any of you know me, you may know that I have no problem going to a restaurant and eating alone. When I went on business trips, I'd eat my free breakfast in the hotel, I would not eat lunch, and I would go take myself out to dinner. I have no problem with that. You know what makes a problem when you eat by yourself? If the food is too good. If the meal is too good, it's, it's lost, isn't it? Why? You've got to share it with somebody. The meal better not be too good. The idea of celebrating alone is, is one of the saddest thoughts that you can have. In every culture in the world, a meal together is such an important space for joy. And so think about this. Jesus lived his life in this fishing culture. He asked for broiled fish. How many meals uh, do you think these men ate that consisted of broiled fish? If you said breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you were right. All they ate was broiled fish. And that's important because how many times did Jesus and his disciples sit together eating fish? Think of the memories that they had over the years together. Memories of banter, memories of laughter, of conversation, of teaching, of intimacy, all around a meal of fish. All right, so now Jesus stands before them. He calms their fears and confronts their doubts with an act they've seen him do hundreds of times. Let's eat some fish. In other words, guys, it's me. It's me. 
And so give yourself over to the joy that it's me. And that's exactly what happens. The disciples raise their expectations of hope and they heed this invitation to joy. And what's beautiful is that Luke records, this isn't the end of the story. This joy is life-changing. We see this. Skip ahead to verse 50. Jesus led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke closes his gospel. He fast-forwards to the ascension, where the resurrected Jesus is exalted to heaven until he returns again. And you have to imagine, could this potentially be another moment of, of hopes dashed? This roller coaster of emotion, another opportunity for disappointment. The disciples have given themselves over to joy once again. Jesus is back in their lives and he's gone again. How would they respond to this departure? It's, it's too good to be true. Well, that's what you'd expect. That's not what happened. Instead, verse 52 they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. This time, their joy is unstoppable. We're talking about the disciples of Jesus here. Their lives didn't get easier. They got harder. I mean, this is one of the great considerations, right? If we struggle with, can I really believe that, that Jesus rose from the dead? One of the greatest evidences are the lives changed by Jesus' resurrection. Here you have these men whose lives only got harder. All but one of 12 would, would die the death of a martyr. None of these early founders of, of Christianity, right? None of them got sex, money, or power which is how this world operates, which is how this world works. So what did they get if they didn't get those things? Well, they got some kind of hope and joy that doesn't make any sense. But we see where it's grounded. We see where it's grounded. And so where does this joy come from? And I think we have it in our passage. First, it's the joy of the forgiveness of sins. It's the joy of the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Once they give themselves over that Jesus, yes, it's you, you're back, then what does Jesus do? He takes them on a journey through the scriptures to show them he is the one that they've been waiting for. Jesus didn't say, listen, guys, I'm the example, which, by the way, you couldn't follow anyway. He doesn't sit with his disciples and say, how could you miss this, you knuckleheads? He doesn't scold them. He doesn't tell them you have to try harder and do better. You should have paid better attention to me. Instead, he just preaches himself through the scriptures. This has to be one of those times you wish you were a fly on the wall, right? Jesus preaching himself through the scriptures. Guys, the one you've been waiting for is here. The one who would suffer the death that we deserve to die because of our sin. Jesus did that for us. Jesus took our sin and he took our shame. All of that embarrassment, all of that shame we experienced as our leader was taken to the cross. He did that for me. It's what I deserve. We are cursed under the law as lawbreakers, but he became a curse for us. Joy in the forgiveness of sins. That doesn't mean very much without the joy of resurrection power. The pain and grief and sorrow of this world will not have the last word. Death itself is overcome in the death and resurrection of Christ. 
It's this Jesus who in his resurrection power overcomes the brokenness of this world. This is the joy that we see on display. And this is the joy that we are invited into, into this world. They knew Jesus was risen and hope overwhelmed hopelessness. And friends, Easter was just the beginning. Every day, every story, one day will be surprised, will be overcome by that same resurrection joy. They knew that despite what every hard and difficult and sorrowful circumstance was telling them, the resurrection was truer, it was ultimate, and it was final. Resurrection was the last word of Christ's story, and if you are in him, he has promised this word to be the true and final word of yours. So this is what I'm asking you to believe this morning. I'm not asking you to think happy thoughts. Joy is not about thinking happy thoughts. Happy thoughts are great. Happy thoughts also get crushed. I'm not asking you to be positive or or optimistic. I'm asking you to believe simply that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. That it actually happened. And it is a preview and guarantee for every single person who puts their trust in him. If you're listening, and and I'm I'm going to assume right now that that not everyone in this room puts their trust in Christ. Um, I'm I'm going to assume that there are some people in this room who just, they, they just, the dead stay dead. The dead stay dead. My word for you is that your cynicism is telling you the truth. This is as good as it gets. This is as good as it gets. Find your coping methods. Listen to the marketers and advertisers. This is as good as it gets. Keep your expectations low. But it doesn't have to be this way. You can, this Easter, bury your low expectations and give yourself to the risen Jesus. And you can raise your expectations of hope and joy. For those of you who trust and follow Jesus, man, it's, it's, I think it's good news that we are not slapping a coat of pastel paint on a world that needs it. Today is a feast day, and, and the primary feast is that we are feasting on the hope and joy knowing this world will be made new again. So my invitation to you is take inventory of the brokenness of the world, take inventory of the brokenness of your homes and of your heart, Um, Take inventory of the pain in your story and know this, Jesus is risen and he's coming for all of it. Soon all of heaven and earth will hear this decree. These are some of the final words that the risen Jesus speaks. The very last verses of the New Testament in Revelation 21, Behold, I make all things new. Behold, I resurrect all things. That's not what life in this world has taught us to believe. And that's why Easter is a protest against the way of this world. But it's not just a protest, it's the promise of the better world to come. Let us pray. Lord, on this Easter morning... Uh, April 2022, would this be the truest reality in our lives? Lord, we confess that it's not far too often, that it's something assumed, something that we just 
kind of keep in the back of our minds. And yet, Lord, would this be the, the, the greatest, truest reality that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead? Not just this beautiful story from history that, that just involves Jesus, but you incorporate us into that story. And Lord, as we're confronted with a world that, that, is, that is decaying, and maybe in a way in, in this time where we feel it, we feel it heavily. We feel the, the reality of living in a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. Lord, would we, would we fix our eyes on the risen Jesus? Would we fix our hearts on his promises? Would we, would we stake our lives on, on a hope and joy um, that, that is not just transient? It's not something that's here one day and, and gone tomorrow, and it certainly is, is not pastel. It's certainly not sentimental. It's flesh and blood reality. Lord, would you help us to see that this morning? Lord, we're grateful for Jesus. We're grateful for his work that he did for us as our champion. To the cross he went as our victor. To the grave he went taking the place where we belong. And in his resurrection, Lord, his victory, his spoils are ours. Who are we but recipients of such beautiful grace? Lord, shape us according to these realities. Shape our hearts, shape our minds, our wills. Lord, we give you thanks and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.